Turn with me to Acts 12. Our scripture reading is going to be Acts 12, verses 1 through 19. That's the story of James's death and Peter's second miraculous escape from prison. But before we hear the reading and preaching of God's word, let's ask for God's blessing upon them. Would you pray with me? God of mercy, you promised never to break your covenant with us. Amid all the changing words of our generation, speak now your eternal word that does not change. Then we may respond to your gracious promises with faithful and obedient lives. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Acts 12, verses 1 through 19. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold... An angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy she did not open the gate but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, y'all can come up and join me. Good to see y'all. Come on up. Find a spot. Have you guys ever heard of like a lucky penny or a lucky rabbit's foot, something like that? Yeah? You, you've heard of that kind of stuff? Yeah, some people believe that carrying a lucky item will help you. The idea, they say, is as long as you have that thing, it'll keep you safe from bad things and maybe even cause some good things to happen to you. Now, check out this coin. This is uh, a silver half dollar from the year that I was born, 1981. That's starting to feel like a long time ago. Someone once told me that this thing is lucky because it's from the year that I was born. They believed that it would, it would actually make good things happen to me. But can you guess how much good luck this thing has actually brought me? <laughs> you got it. None at all. <laughs> that, that's because the Bible shows us that there is no such thing as luck. Nothing happens by chance, good or bad. Our God is totally in control of everything. But that actually raises some questions for us when we read a passage like the one that we just read, like this one. Uh, Because Herod killed James, one of Jesus' apostles, and he was going to kill Peter too, but God rescued him. Now, here we see with Peter that God really has the power to rescue so if God is really in control, then why was it that Peter was rescued, but James died? That's a really big question, right? And you know what answer God gives? None at all. God doesn't answer those questions like that. But do you know what he does instead? He shows us again and again and again that although he does things that we do not understand, we can trust him totally. After all, Jesus died too, right? And Jesus, Jesus experienced the same thing as James. And look at what God did through Jesus' death. Captives were set free. Spiritually lame people were healed, made whole. The poor were made rich, and there was no longer any condemnation for those who follow Jesus and trust in him instead of ourselves. Even death is something that God can use to do incredible good. But we see more than that in Jesus, right? We see that in Jesus, our God has the power to rescue even after the worst thing has happened, because what happened on the third day after Jesus died? He rose again from the dead, never to die again. And if our God has that kind of power, then we don't have to be afraid of anything at all because our God is powerful to rescue. And if he does not, then he must be doing some other good thing that we just can't see yet. And so for you and me, guys, we don't know if our story is going to be like James's or Peter's. We don't know what God is going to do in our lives. But whether our lives are short or long or easy or hard, looking at Jesus can help us trust that God's will for us, his plan for us, is good and wise and loving. 
if God rescues us from some trouble like he did Peter, God must have some more good work for us to do. And if we die like James, then we know that not even death is the end of the story. Because Jesus is the beginning of a whole new creation. He is the firstborn from the dead. And if we are in him, then we will live with him. And because our good and wise and loving God is in control instead of luck, that's why we call this good news. Do you believe it? All right. Thanks, guys. You can go back to your seats. If you've not done so already, you can open your Bibles to Acts chapter 12. Sam said we are looking at verses 1 through 19 this morning. The, the story of Peter's second miraculous escape from prison, but, but also uh, the story of James' murder at the hands of Herod. We're, we're told that, that Herod laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church, and that among those whom he harmed was James, one of the apostles, one of Jesus' inner circle, so that James becomes, as far as we know, the, the first apostle to be martyred. And this is really a, a continuation of what we've been seeing up to this point in the book of Acts. Luke, uh, in chapter 11, reminded us of the persecution that arose after Stephen's stoning. You remember that it was that persecution that, that began to drive the Christians out of Jerusalem. It was that persecution that, that scattered the disciples and with them the, the seed of the word into Samaria at first and then beyond Samaria as far as Phoenicia and, and Cyprus and, and Antioch. And here Luke tells us that, that Herod the king is now putting his official weight behind that persecution. Now this Herod is, is the grandson of the Herod who tried to kill Jesus so shortly after he was born. And he is the nephew of the Herod who, who participated in Jesus' trial. And like them, this Herod is an appointee of Rome. He, he has his power only at Rome's pleasure. And so he was always trying to, uh, to make sure that, that he kept the peace in his territories. Because if there was one thing that the Romans didn't like, it was disorder. And if, official, and if an official would demonstrate an inability to maintain peace in his territory, he would soon be Replaced, And so here, Herod is, is concerned with keeping the peace, at least his version of the peace. And one way of, of doing that was to curry favor with the Jewish authorities, to, to get them on his side so that they could keep the people in line. And so it is in an attempt to secure his position as the king, that he begins to lay violent hands on the church. At first, at least, he, he probably was doing this simply because he thought they were agitators. He, he thought they were troublemakers. It was their presence that was disrupting the, the peace of the Jews. And so he just he wanted to put an end to it. And, and he laid violent hands on the church. But, but seeing that this pleased the Jewish authorities and, and sort of got uh, roused their support for his leadership... He decided that he would take it even further and, and begin to put the leaders of this movement to death. 
And so having killed James, the brother of John, one of the one of Jesus' inner circle, one of the, the three that Jesus would often take with him. Uh, for example, when he went up on the Mount of Transfiguration or when he, when he went off to, to pray. Herod, having, having laid violent hands on the church, puts James to death and arrests Peter, no doubt with the full intention of putting him to death also after the Passover. And so it's that death That begins this story of of Peter's rescue that I want us to to look at first. You see, we we think of this rightly as the the story of Peter's deliverance. We we think of this rightly as as the story of Peter's rescue, and yet, and yet it begins with the story of James' death. And I and I don't want us to pass over that too quickly. Because I think James' death, mentioned just very briefly at the beginning, I think it is there to to help us to understand the significance of this story. It's there to to keep us from misreading or or misapplying the story of Peter's rescue. Because it shows us clearly, it, it shows us really beyond doubt that God's will is not always to deliver his people from temporal dangers. It shows us that that God's will is not always to rescue from the threats that we face in this present evil age. To borrow a phrase that is commonly used among uh, some evangelicals today, you can be right in the middle of God's will for your life and still be killed with the sword. It's not true that if you, just, if you can just find the middle of God's will, then you'll be safe. All the danger will be off to the left or off to the right. If you can just, if you can just stay in the middle of God's will, then, then everything will be okay as far as this world is concerned. That's simply not the case. It is not always God's will to rescue his people from the threats they face in this life. You can be steadfastly walking in the footsteps of faith and still suffer in grievous ways here and now. Temporal health, wealth, and prosperity are not promised to Jesus' disciples. And this is, a, this is a truth that we all need to come to terms with. It's a, it's a truth that I had to come to terms with this past summer as I was with my son in the hospital in Nashville, I I had to accept that no amount of prayer, no amount of devotion could guarantee the outcome I wanted. We could have have people praying for us all over the world. I could be devoted to prayer myself, and yet nothing I did could guarantee the outcome that I wanted. God had not promised health. And I could not compel him to give it, even by appealing to his promises. I could, I could not say, well, God, you, you remember what you said. Remember what you promised. You've got to do this. To come to terms with the reality that health, wealth, and prosperity are not always God's will for his people in this 
life. Now, for some of you here this morning, that, that, that may be shocking, even deeply troubling. It may be, be contrary to everything you've ever heard taught in the church. And, and I understand that discomfort. I, under, I understand being troubled by this idea that, that following God doesn't always lead to a, a comfortable and, and, and pleasant life here and now. Because, after all, we believe that God works all things together for the good of those who love him, do we not? We, we've confessed it even this morning in the songs that we've, we've sung and in the, the prayers that we've, we've offered. And we, and we believe that because Paul tells us that explicitly. In Romans chapter 8, Paul tells us explicitly that, that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. And it's hard for us to hear that as anything but a promise of health, wealth, and prosperity here and now. If we just love God enough, if we just love God rightly, then he's going to have to work for our good. And, and that must mean good as we understand it. But of course, our understanding of good is not always the same as, as God's understanding of good. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And so the good that we have in mind is not always the same as the good that God intends for his people. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, Paul tells us the good that he has in mind. He tells us the, the good that God is working for his people. He tells us that that good that he is working, that good that he promises, is that we would be conformed to the image of his son. That is the good which he is working. That is the good that, that he will not fail to bring to completion. That is the good that he will undoubtedly secure for all those who love him. Now, now again, for, for some of us, that seems like a bait and switch. It seems like God has offered one thing, this, this idea of good, and then, and then what he's offered is something else entirely, being conformed to the image of his son, a son who suffered quite a lot and died. doesn't sound like the same thing. Something great was promised, but something significantly less is actually being given. I want you to hear me say this morning that that is anything but the case. This is, this is not a bait and switch. If anything, what we originally understood by the promise pales in comparison to the wonder of what is truly being offered. That is because God is, is giving something far greater than we can often even ask or imagine. As Jesus himself said, life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Now, we, we've heard Jesus say that. We, 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 we know that it's true, and yet if we're honest with ourselves, we have to admit that that's hard for us to believe, is it not? <laughs> Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Life does not consist in the abundance of, of pleasures. Life does, does not consist in, in the praise of men. All the things that we set our, our heart on, all the things that we think will, will fulfill us, all the things that, that we think will, will, will amount to a good life, 
Jesus says that's not where life is found. Life is not found in health, wealth, and, and prosperity. Those are not bad things. Don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Uh, on the contrary, these are, these are good things. Health is good. It's why Jesus so often healed. Health is, is good. Wealth is good. Sometimes that's a little harder for us to believe, but, but it was God who created a world of, of material abundance. It was God who, who promised his people a land flowing with milk and honey. It's God who is, who is bringing us to a new heavens and a new earth where, where material abundance will overflow. Material abundance is, is also a, a good thing. But what we have to understand is that in this present age, we can have those things. We can have health, relatively speaking. We can have an abundance of possessions and we can still not have life, not have the life for which we were created, not have the, the joy that God intends for us to know in him. We can have health, wealth, and prosperity here and now and remain empty and cold. It's why even the world says money doesn't ultimately buy happiness. It's why we know that, that we can have an, an abundance of things. We, we can have our health. We can, we can have wealth. And we can remain restless and dissatisfied. You can think of the, the stories yourself. Those who, who seemingly have everything and yet don't have life. Life, true life, abundant life is not found there. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. So rather, what is life? What is true life? Jesus himself tells us in his prayer uh, in, uh, on the night that he was betrayed. He says, this is life, to know the Father. This is life, to, to be in communion with God. That is the life for which we were created. It is in fellowship with him that we find the joy for which our hearts crave. And what we need to understand is that the communion with God for which we were created, the, the fellowship with God for which our hearts long, even if we don't know it, that fellowship, that communion is possible only insofar as we are conformed to the image of his Son. If we are not like Jesus, if we are not conformed to the image of his son, then his presence is not a place of peace, but a place of terror. It is only as we are conformed to the image of his son, it is only as we are sanctified, it is only as we are made more and more like him that we are able to enter into the joy of the salvation that he has for us. And this is why our salvation must include sanctification. This is why we need to be cleansed of sin's pollution and corruption. It is not enough to merely be forgiven. Now, now the forgiveness of sins is necessary. We, we need the guilt of our sins to be dealt with. We need our guilt to be removed from us as far as the east is from the west. But you need to understand that if the gospel stopped there, it would not be good news. We need more than merely forgiveness. We need to be made holy. We need to be conformed to the, to the image of our Savior, that we might enter into fellowship with him, that we might enjoy his presence both now and forevermore. 
And this is why the gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel of more than forgiveness. It is a full gospel. It is a gospel of full salvation. It is a gospel where sinners are not only pardoned, but are transformed. It is a sinner where we, it is a, it is a gospel where, where sinners are made holy, not only in name, yes in name, but more than that, we will be made holy in reality. What has been declared about us in justification will be made our experiential reality as God brings to completion the good work that he has begun in us. And we are being made holy. We are being conformed to the image of the Son that we might live in communion and, and fellowship with our Father in the full joy of our salvation for all eternity. That is the good that God will not fail to work for all those who love him. And that means that, that we should never set our hope in this life on temporal deliverance. It means that, that we should never make our ultimate hope, our ultimate ambition, uh, deliverance from this or that temporal threat. Because temporal deliverance in this life can never be our greatest good. Our greatest good is to be filled with the, the knowledge of God. This is why Paul prays the way that he does for the church. Think of, think of how he prays for the Colossians. In, when he, in praying for the Colossians, he prays that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will, with all spiritual wisdom and discernment, that they might know what is excellent and walk in it. That they might walk in, in fellowship and, and in communion with their Father. That just as they have received Christ Jesus the Lord, they might now walk in Him. Or, or think how he prays for the Philippians, praying that, that uh, their, their love for God and for one another would abound more and more with spiritual wisdom and, and discernment. That they might learn to, to walk in a manner that reflects the love of God for them in Christ. And this is how we must learn to, to pray for one another. I wonder if it's how the church was, was actually praying in, these, in this passage. We, we sometimes give the, the church a hard time here because they're, they're praying for Peter, and when he shows up, they, they don't believe that he's actually there. They, they, they don't believe that, that he could possibly be, uh, could be in, the, in the street because they know that he is in Herod's prison under, under strict guard. But, but I wonder if it, if it wasn't so much that they didn't believe that, that Peter could be rescued as if they, they, they had actually disregarded that long before. They, they were actually maybe weren't even praying to that end. Maybe they were simply praying that, that God would, would strengthen and comfort him in this moment. They'd seen that James was already uh, put to death. And now maybe they were, they were simply praying that Peter too, like James, would, would stand firm in the faith. We don't know exactly how they were praying. But we know that they were praying for uh, Peter. And I would suggest to you that their, their ultimate prayer for him was not that he would be delivered. That, that may have been part of it. And it's, it's right and good to sometimes pray for deliverance. I, I prayed for, for Thomas's healing uh, this, this summer. It's right and good to, to pray for such deliverances. But we must also remember that those deliverances are not our ultimate hope. That our ultimate hope is that good that God promises to all who love him. That our ultimate hope is that God would, would conform us more and more to the image of his son, that we might know him and, and stand in fellowship with him for all eternity in the age to come. 
You see, that's what we must understand. That's why James' death is mentioned at the beginning of this passage, because it's only when we, when we have that context, when we only see that it is not always God's will to deliver, that we are prepared to learn from Peter's deliverance. So let's look at that now. We've seen that, that it's not always God's will to deliver. We've seen that the, that the good that, that God works for his people is, is, is greater than temporal deliverance. But here in this passage, we do have a story of temporal deliverance. We have a story of, of Peter being rescued from the, from the violent hands of the king. And so what are we to learn from this? Let me suggest to you that the first thing that we learn from this is, is exactly what Sam was telling to the kids. That regardless of what God's will is, regardless of what God's plan is, one thing that we always know is that God always is able to rescue. Temporal threats are never more than our God can handle. Earthly powers can never thwart God's purpose to bring about his intended good for those who love him. And that means that if you are suffering, if, if you are not being delivered, if the threat is not being turned away, it is never because God is unable to save. Notice how Luke describes Herod's uh, uh, intentions and strategies here in this passage. He, he's laying violent hands on the church in order to, to curry favor with the, with the Jewish leaders. And because he knows that, that, that Peter has escaped before, he goes to great lengths to make sure that that doesn't happen again. We're, we're told that he employs four squads of soldiers. And the commentators suggest that that was to keep the watches short that, so that there would be no possibility of these, uh, of these soldiers falling asleep in the night. He, he employs four squads of soldiers to, to guard Peter, and, and he chains him between two soldiers, which again was, was, was doubling the norm. He wasn't just chained to one soldier, he's chained between two soldiers again to, to make sure that this prisoner does not escape. These are, by Roman standards, extreme measures. Extreme measures that no doubt reflect the reality that Herod knows Peter has escaped before, and he's not going to let that happen on his watch. And yet Herod's extreme measures are no match for God's power. Just, just look how, how Luke tells the story. An angel comes and stands next to him in the prison and he, and he has to wake him up. Again, commentators suggest that, that the fact that Peter is, is sleeping here suggests to us uh, the, 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 the reality of his faith that he has entrusted himself to his heavenly father. He, he is at ease. He, he doesn't know what's coming. He doesn't know whether God plans to deliver him or, or, or to, to strengthen him to face death. In fact, if anything, uh, the fact that he doesn't believe it's real when it's happening to him suggests that, that he had sort of resigned himself to the reality that, that he was on the same road that James had, had already walked. And yet here he is asleep between the prisoners entrusting himself to uh, the father and the angel shows up and a light shines in the, uh, in the prison and, and he not only has to wake him up but he has to sort of give him uh, repeated prompts to, hey, come on, get dressed, we're, we're going. You know, put, put on your cloak, put on your shoes, get your coat, we're, we're, we're out of here. The, the, the image is almost of a relaxed escape. 
You ever, ever seen a movie where, where there's a, a prisoner, it might be the good guy, it might be the, the bad guy, but the, but the prisoner uh, is, is completely relaxed. He's, he's completely relaxed. Why? Because he knows that his escape is imminent. He knows that it's not too long before he will be walking out the door. And whatever it is that he was waiting on, whenever it finally happens, he just sort of casually picks up his coat and walks out. We, we've all seen that scene played over and over again in, in various movies. And, and that's something like the picture that, that, that Luke is painting here. This is a relaxed escape. This is, this is not a, a, an escape through a, through a sewage pipe. This is, this is a guy picking up his coat and walking out the front door. Why? Because his God is in complete control. That's the picture that Luke wants us to see. Luke wants us to see here a, a relaxed escape because God's power is so far greater than the powers that are holding Peter in prison. This shows us that, that God is always able to rescue. Even the most extreme measures of the king are no match for his Power. It is not always his will to rescue, but it is always within his power. And this means that just like Peter sleeping in the prison, we can fully entrust ourselves to him. It's what Luke wants us to see. We, we can trust him. We can entrust ourselves to him. If he does not rescue us, it's, it's not for lack of power. If he does not rescue us, it is for his own purposes. And it's because he is, is doing his thing. It's because he is working his will, as he always does. We, we may not know exactly what that means. We, we seldom know exactly what that means. You know, let's just be honest. We, we seldom know exactly what God is up to. We, we are not God, and we cannot even begin to, to comprehend his plans and his, his purposes. But we know, we know that he is in control. And we know that he is working all things according to the counsel of his will. And that means that, that if he has not rescued you, if he has not yet delivered you from, from whatever the temporal threat happens to be, it is not because he is unable, it's not because he is unconcerned. It's because he has something to accomplish through your present situation. We don't always know what that is. It may be simply that you endure with hope, that you bring him, him glory by, by facing the threat with the full confidence that, that he is your God and that he is your Father. But if, but if he is allowing you to suffer, if he has not yet delivered you, it is because he has some purpose, some higher purpose, some, some greater purpose in keeping you where you are. And of course, if he does rescue you, it's because he has some greater purpose. It's because he has some, some purpose for your rescue. You see, that's the point here, that, that whether God rescues or whether he doesn't rescue, he is, he is working all things according to the counsel of his will. If he, if he rescues or if he, if he doesn't rescue, he has something for you to do. And that's really the second thing I want you to, to see here is that when God does rescue, when he, when he rescues Peter, he is rescuing him back into service. We, we see this in the fact that, that Peter immediately goes back to the church. He immediately goes to the, to the house where the, where the church is gathered and, and praying. 
We, we saw Peter do this earlier. Remember the first time that he was rescued from prison? He went immediately back into the temple courts where he had been arrested. And he, went, and he began immediately to, to preach the same gospel that had gotten him in trouble in the first place. Peter was, was rescued back into service. And it's, it's not quite as clear here, but it's, it's clear enough. Peter goes back to the church. He goes back to the house. He, he lets them know that he's out, and then he goes about his uh, business. We're not, we're not told where he goes, but we're told that then he departed and went to another place. Peter continues his work as an apostle. He, he continues to, to, to preach the gospel. He, he continues. We'll, we'll see him later in Jerusalem at the, at the council. We, he's continuing to, to serve the church. And this is the way that it always is. Throughout the scriptures, God's rescue is always back into service. Just, just think of the Exodus. Maybe, maybe the most uh, profound picture of rescue in the Old Testament. What is, the, what is the refrain that is repeated again and, and again? Let my people go that they may serve me. God rescues his people. He rescues us that we may serve him. Again, not because he needs us. He's not dependent upon our, our labors, but rather in his grace, he has called us into the service of the king. He has, he has bestowed that honor on us. He has prepared good works that we should do them to the praise of his glory and the, and the good of his people. And when he rescues us, it is because he has work for us to do. This is what Paul is reflecting on in, in Philippians chapter 1 when he says, Listen, for me, for me to die would be gain. It would be, it'd be setting free from all of the trouble and the, and the distress and the anguish of this life. But I suspect that God's going to keep me here because there's still work to do. Because it's still in your benefit. I can still minister the, the gospel to you. And that is true not only for Paul, that is true for every one of us. God always has the power to save. And whether he saves or whether he doesn't. It is always because he has work for us to do to the praise of his glory. Bob Drake, the, the pastor that I uh, mentored under in uh, Asheville, North Carolina, in my first church, used to get at this idea when he would visit people in the hospital. When he would go to, to visit someone in the hospital, he would, he would always ask, now, now why again should God heal you? I've never actually had the boldness to ask that question in a hospital room. Um, and I'm not quite sure how he got away with it. But it's a good question. Why? Why should God heal you? Not just so that you can be healthy for its own sake. Not just so that you can get out of the hospital. But rather your health serves his purpose. Your life is to the praise of his glory. And that's good because it's in his service that you find your joy, that you find the life for which you were created. And so if God is going to rescue you from your temporal uh, threat, if, if God is going to, to rescue from whatever danger or, or, or suffering you find yourself in, it is because he is rescuing you for his service. Now, now again, we, we have to be, be careful at this point. That, that doesn't mean that, that if God rescues you from some temporal uh, danger, that he has something great for you to do in the way that the world uses that language. We sometimes think, oh, well, God rescued you. There must be something big. But remember, in God's economy, the smallest things are, are often the most glorious things. I don't know what, what God's will is for you 
after you've been rescued, any more than I knew it before you were rescued. We discern God's will how? We discern God's will by offering ourselves to him as living sacrifices. We discern God's will by, by devoting ourselves to his work today and walking the path that he sets before us. I don't know if, if the things that he has for you will be great in the world's eyes or, or whether they will be so small as to be hardly recognized, but whatever God has for you, they are the works he has prepared for you. They are the works that, that he is calling you to do in his service. And if he rescues you, it's because you need that rescue in order to continue to walk in the way that he would have you to go. And when we begin to see this, when we begin to recognize that, that, that we are always rescued into his service, back into his service, it, it allows us to understand what we're doing when we pray, thy will be done. Have you ever, have you ever used that, that, that phrase when you were praying for something really big, something you weren't quite sure God was going to do? We, we sometimes tack it on as the end as if we were trying to let God off the hook. God, I really want this really big thing, but, but ah, your will be done. And we use it in that, in that sort of way as sort of to give God as an, an excuse as if he needed one. That is not what the phrase means. That is not why we pray, thy will be done. God doesn't need us to let him off the hook. God doesn't need to, 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 for us to create an excuse for him in, in case he doesn't answer the way we want him to. But rather, thy will be done is an expression of our absolute confidence that his will is better. That his will is better than our own. When we pray, thy will be done, we are acknowledging in faith that our highest and best desire is for his will, not our will. His plan, not our plan. We recognize that God is wiser than we are. We, we recognize that, that God is more loving than we are. When we pray, we pray thy will be done because we trust him more than we trust ourselves. Have you ever been in a situation where, where you worked so hard to accomplish some purpose and, and the results and the outcome were the exact opposite of what you thought? Has your wisdom ever been insufficient to navigate a situation? We've all been there. We all know what it is for, for our own wisdom, for, for what we thought was best to end up being something other. God never experiences that. God's wisdom is never deficient. And so when we pray, thy will be done, it's not to let God off the hook. It's rather to place ourselves in his hands and recognize, God, what we desire is to be delivered. What we desire is to be rescued from this threat. But Father, we trust you more than we trust ourselves. We rest in your wisdom more than we rest in your own. We will lean not on our own understanding, but in all our ways we will acknowledge you. We will acknowledge you as our Savior and Lord. And so when we pray, we pray thy will be done, because we are entrusting ourselves into the hands of the Father who is always able to save and only doesn't save when he, know, when he knows it is for his glory and our good. That's what this story is about. 
in this story, we, we see, yes, James' death and, and Peter's rescue side by side that we might know that, that God is always able to say, but it's not always his, his will to say. And so that we might know that, that whether he saves or not, he is working for our good. He, he's working to, to bring us back into his service. He's working to bring us back into his fellowship, back into his communion. That in fellowship with him, in service to him, we might know the joy of the salvation that he has secured for us in Christ. If we need to be delivered to, to glorify God, we will be delivered. If deliverance does not serve his purposes, deliverance will not come. James glorified God through his death. Peter glorified God through his rescue. And because God will always give us the grace to glorify him, whether by life or by death, that is one reason we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we come before you now, humbly asking that you would give us the grace to believe, that you would give us the grace we need to, to entrust ourselves to you. Father, whether you would have us to bring glory to your name through our death, as James did, or whether you would have us to bring glory to your name through our rescue, as, as Peter did, may we trust you. May we rest in you, Father. And may we seek to serve and honor you in all things. Whether we remain in prison, whether we face death, or whether we are rescued uh, to continue preaching your gospel, Father, whatever your will, May we trust it as we entrust ourselves to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.